Well, this is um, systematic, let me make sure I'm in the right place, systematic theology, lesson three, though today is October the 3rd, our actually this is our fourth lesson, so uh, today uh, we're going to pray and then we're going to finish up on the attributes of God and then we're going to get right into the doctrine of the Trinity. And so let me welcome you today and let me welcome the folks who are watching online. Uh, we have people scattered all over the, the globe, really, watching us, tuning us in. And uh, John Bailey and his wife are up in New York City. I said I'd give them a shout out. As they're usually here with us, but they're in New York uh, watching us today. And so um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get right into our, our material this morning. Okay, Lord, it is a good morning, God. This is the day you have made. Uh, we rejoice. We are very, very glad, Lord, to be alive, to have our health, uh, to be able to have transportation, to get here, to be able to come to an amazing a church, facilities, and to be able to meet with one another. Most of all, God, to meet with you, to have fellowship with you, to worship you with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and our strength. So, God, we pray that you'd open up our minds today so that we could absorb everything you want us to absorb. God, speak to us. We, we beg of you, God, to enlarge the territory of our minds so that we can worship you no, more know you better, and so that we could serve you, God, more effectively. Thank you for each person that is here. pray that you'd bless them, bless their walk with you, bless their families, bless their ministries, and, and bless, bless our church today, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on in. If you need some coffee, grab it real quick, and then we're going to get, get right into our uh, material this morning. Let us pick up where we left off last time as we're talking about the communicable attributes of God. And I tell you, just going over these and understanding just who God is. And by the way, God is a revealing God. He wants us to know who He is. He is not hiding Himself, but He is just the opposite. He is exposing. He wants us to know Him in His fullness, in His deity, in His power. And that's why I enjoy reading these um, these attributes of God, it, it, it lets us peer into His character, His nature, His essence. And so let, let's pick up, I think we're on number um, 17. We have 20 of these communicable uh, attributes of God. The outline you have is for lesson three, but you still may have your outline from lesson two, and we're under uh, the communicable attributes. Number 17 is God is perfect. Uh, God is perfect. He, he possesses all the qualities that he needs and he lacks nothing that he desires. God lacks nothing that he desires. In fact, the Bible says in Matthew 5, 48, Jesus said the heavenly Father is perfect. Remember, he said, be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. So this is a communicable attribute. If we can relate to this, we can understand this. I, I don't think we will ever attain absolute entire sanctification or perfection on this earth. Now, I have people that really disagree with me on that. In fact, I wrote a dissertation on a guy who would greatly argue with that and say, yes, you can. You can attain absolute perfection. And the reason Paul had a thorn in the flesh is because he was in sin. And, and as the guy did, I mean, he really critiqued. He said, Paul should have gotten over it. He should have prayed harder. And God would have given him. To, and I thought, man, if the greatest Christian ever lived, never attained entire perfection, then Charles Finney, I'm not either. And that's the guy, by the way, I did my dissertation on. So, perfection. God is perfect. I can say we're not, but He is. And Psalm 18.30 <clears throat> says God's ways. God's way is, is perfect. When I was writing this lecture, and I have the date here, July the 10th 
a few months ago, I was just, I was just, abs- you know, I was just awestruck. I was just, st- I was sitting there and I was typing this lecture and I was thinking, God, you are perfect. Can you wrap your minds around that for a moment? Everything that is good, light, bright, brilliant, wonderful, awesome, amazing. He, he, he is that. And I, and I think it's all the more amazing is because I know how imperfect I am. Are you with me? You juxtapose yourself. You're like, oh my word. He's so awesome. But here's the thing. He is that, and He still loves us. And He still wants us to know Him. He still wants us to walk in fellowship with Him because we are His highest creation. Uh, above the angels, above everything else He's created, He has created mankind in His image so that we can know Him in His uh, perfection, even though we are very imperfect. So he is perfect. 18, uh, God is blessed. God is blessed and he delights in himself. God delights in himself and all that reflect his character and all that which reflects his character. And let me give you a couple of scriptures here if you want to jot these down quickly. They're both in Timothy. 1 Timothy 1.11, 1 Timothy 6.15, in fact, the latter says, 1 Timothy 6.15, that God, He is the blessed and only sovereign. 1 Timothy 1.11 also uses this great word, blessed. And, of course, we see this word a lot in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, they shall inherit the kingdom of God. You've probably heard this. The word for blessed in the Greek is makarios. And, and it literally means happy. And I know it can mean complete, fulfilled, and so forth. But at its bare minimum, it means, it means happy. So God is perfectly happy. He needs nothing to make him more happy. He, God, takes pleasure in those things he has created that mirror his uh, excellence. Remember in Genesis 1, you know, God created everything. He called it good. And at the end, verse 31, God created us and he called it what? He said, this is very good. Uh, God is blessed, happy. He delights. You know, again, as I read these attributes, it's more than just a cerebral or theoretical theological exercise for me because these are communicable attributes. And so I see God as blessed and he's, he's perfect and he's, he lacks nothing. He, en- he enjoys himself. He enjoys what he has created. And I thought about me. And sometimes I, I'm not that way. And I, my mind gets divided and, and I become, this is not really a word, but I'm going to use it. I get unblessed. And I don't think there's a time in our lives where we should feel like God is not blessing us. But I know we're human. I know we live in a fallen world. And I know we worry. But listen to Psalm 1611. It says, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is... Does anybody know this verse? Fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The reason God, we can enjoy fullness of joy is because that's who God is. He is delightful. He is joyous. He, and He wants us to be that way. So I wrote in my notes these words. Don't worry. Be happy like God. How about that? Verse 745, 645. Don't worry. Be happy. God is happy. He is blessed. He is makarios. And we can as well. God, mm, 19, is beautiful. How about that attribute? God is beauty. Personified. This refers to the, the attribute that is, he is the sum of all desirable qualities. He is the sum of all desirable qualities. Grudem distinguishes between perfection and beauty this way. He said perfection, the former, it, this is where God lacks nothing desirable. But the latter, beauty, 
is God has everything desirable. And Psalm 27, 4 says, David says, I will dwell upon the beauty of the Lord. As I thought about this, I thought about a song from uh, Keith Green. I don't know if anybody remembers Keith Green. He's a wonderful uh, Christian contemporary uh, singer. I remember reading his biography years ago, written by his wife, and just talks about his journey and how he was radically saved. And, and he, he always wanted to be a, a superstar singer. He, he just wanted to use his gifts and talents and just make it big in the world. And really, he came like this close to doing it. But God messed him all up. God saved him, and, and God used all those talents. And um, remember, he died in a car, uh, I mean, a plane crash, very untimely, what we would think would be an early death. Here's one of his songs. Oh, I, could, I have a hard time singing, especially at 6.54, amen. Y'all remember this song? Oh, Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I seek. For when your eyes are on this child, your grace abounds to me. And then he keeps singing it. Oh, Lord, you're beautiful. And is he not? Is he not beautiful? Isn't he, listen to this word, isn't he desirous? I mean, really to know him in his perfections, in his beauty, in his completeness, to know him is certainly to, to love him. Since God is the only beautiful being, and in him are all the perfections of beauty, then we find our greatest delight in pursuing him who alone is beautiful and worthy of the pursuit. All right, number 20, our last uh, attribute that we're going to look at. Somebody wrote me this week, and they said, you know, every year I, I read a book on the attributes of God. It just keeps me close to him. It keeps me in appreciation of him and just how, just how incredibly wonderful and, and awesome, amazing he is. All right, so number 20 is glory. And I think you're going to find this one interesting. You know, I love it when I learn something. Don't you like to learn something? I tell you, you say, well, I guess so, Pastor. I wouldn't be up here at old dark 30 if just for my health. I'm telling you, yeah, I want to learn. Yeah, I want to grow deep in the Lord. Talking about deep, we're about to talk about the Trinity in a moment. Now, I'm going to answer all the questions you've ever had <laughs> about the Trinity. <laughs> yeah. And I have some property in Hawaii I'd like to give you, too. Uh, but before we get to the Trinity, let's talk about His glory. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Grudem interprets that word as more honor. This is God's honor. Then he talks about glory as being that created brightness that surrounds his being. And I quote him when he says, It is this outward expression of his own excellence. Now, I want you to wrap your minds around that for just a minute. This is God's outward expression of his own excellence. You say, well, prove that to me. Where in the Bible does it say that? Well, Revelation 21, 23 is an interesting verse. You may want to jot that one down as you talk about glory. Revelation 21, 23 says, There is no need for sun or moon in the new heavens and the new earth because of the glory of God is its light. And so Grudem takes that to be this effervescent, beautiful excellence, this radiance, this glory, just like emanating from God. His, I mean, it's just reflecting how, how incredible he is. And by that glory, it says we don't need sun or moon. We, we see by the glory uh, of God. And so this is still under the rubric of a communicable attribute. So what, how would that relate to us? Now remember, the incommunicable, we, we cannot relate 
to that as much. You know, God being perfect and so, or not perfect, but God just being transcendent, you know, and, and other. But in these eminent qualities, and I, I really thought about this one as far as glory. I wonder if we have that effervescent brightness in us as we walk in this world. Jesus said, you are the what of the world? You are the salt of the earth and the what? The light of the world. Is Jesus living in us and Jesus living through us? You know, kind of like Moses when he, when he came down off the, the mountain and the people were like, Woo, Moses, man, put something on that head. I, whoa, you are just full of the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God resting on him. And I got to thinking about that. I wonder if that's true in our life. And we make a lot of us being the what church? Somebody help me. Woo! Bless you, sister. You got that so quick. I'll give you a prize. Miss Vivian, yes, the radiant church that shines brightly for uh, our Lord. And I tell you, ooh, listen, this is good work. The darker it is, the more recognizable the light. And this world, this culture is very, very dark. You know, I just spent a couple of days in a prayer meeting. And I recommend it, by the way. Spend two days in prayer with some of your buddies. And that's what we did. 170 pastors came across the country. And we met in Dallas Monday and Tuesday. And we prayed for a couple of days. And it was... It was an incredible time. Of, and we did have testimony, and we did have praise and worship, but we did a lot of praying. And, and the reason we all came together is because, like you, we know that our world is in trouble. We know our country is in deep trouble. Okay? If you don't believe that, just open up your eyes and look. We have, we have issues in the, in the White House. We have issues in the State House. But Adrian Rogers said, that's not the issue. The issue is God in your house. You know, is he in our house, in our church, and is he in our house individually? And if we are, I know I'm a little preachy this morning, but listen to this. If, if that's the case and God is in us, then what a great time to be alive. I mean, because people are in darkness and people are worried. Oh, am I going to get a paycheck? Oh, is the government going to just shut down forever? Oh, is this or that? Are the terrorists coming any moment? I mean, and, and in this midst of chaos and confusion and worry and fear, here are the people of God. Here we are. And we've got this light. We've got this glory of God shining in us and through us. Can I just say, it's a good day to be alive. It is a good day to be alive. Look at it like that. The glass is half what? It's half full instead of being uh, half empty. Somebody needed to hear that because you were born in the negative mood. You know, you were just put in a negative. You're like, oh, I'm just, I'm fearful. I'm worried. And I, I relate, I resemble that statement with you sometimes. Okay, this is the, the last um, part of, of lecture two on the doctrine of God, and I'm going to wrap this up, put it in my file here, and we're going to make our way right on into ah, this wonderful doctrine of the Trinity. So if you have your outline, this would be a good time to pull it out. We're going to look at uh, the Trinity in Scripture. We're going to look at eras regarding the doctrine of the Trinity, and I'm going to put some isms on you this morning. I'm telling you, I got some isms. By the way, all these isms are going to be wasms eventually, all right? So here you hear you. <laughs> I know that's bad grammar, isn't it? And then number three, some teachings regarding the Trinity. Now resist the temptation to go down and look at all of that, all right? Just stay with me under number one, and we're going to just give you some thoughts about uh, the Trinity. And if, you're, if you have your Christian Beliefs book, it's just pages 37 through 41. And if you have the big book, I brought my friend over here, the big one. This is pages 226 to 261. This is only what? 36, 46, 56, not even 40 pages. Whereas some of these lectures are like 100 of pages. So this section is really not as long as some of the other sessions that we will study. For example, 
the, uh, the, the scriptures and uh, the one that I just finished, uh, lesson nine, on the doctrine of Christ. And by the way, if you get confused about the Trinity, Wayne Grudem says that's not even the hardest one to understand. The hardest one to understand is how God became a man. God Almighty became a man. And He was fully God, and yet He was fully man. We, as mere mortals, we really can't wrap our minds around. Just like we cannot wrap our minds around God being three persons, and yet God being one being, one entity. And so, we're going to give it a shot. And, and, and let me give you a reference. I don't do this a whole lot by way of reference, but Bruce Ware, W-A-R-E, is a well, he did teach some at Southern Seminary, but Bruce Ware has written a book on the Trinity, and he says, I've written this for the layperson. I was really glad, even though I'd gone through seminary and read that book, I was really glad he wrote that for the layperson because I could really understand it. It's called Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Relationships, Roles, and Relevance. And every word of that title is important. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Relationships, Roles, and Relevance. Okay? So, what a great privilege and responsibility to study the Trinity, the nature of God. A nature, by the way, that we will not grasp fully. And Grudem says, we're not going to grasp this fully in this life, and we're not going to even grasp this fully in the next life. And I know the Scripture says, and we will be known even uh, as, as we are known, and we will see Him as He is. And I, I think Grudem would agree with that, but still he says, God is just so other. In fact, this God being three and one, one and three, really our minds really can't grasp that. Because none of us is a trinity, okay? We are in an entity, and, I, and, and we'll talk about human analogies in, in a few minutes and where they break down. But God is just, he is just other. It, it, is, it is a mystery, absolutely. But if we don't talk about it, and if we don't study it and preach it, I promise you the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses and the Muslims gladly talk about the Trinity. I mean, really, they, in fact, the, the Trinity is one of the reasons why Muslims think we, think we are just absolutely off our rockers. Because they, they accuse us of being tritheist or polytheist. They accuse us of what? Worshiping multiple gods. And we're like, no, 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 no. The Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 5 says, the Lord our God is one, and yet he is three. All right? Now, the word Trinity is never used in the Bible. That may disappoint some of you. You're like, well, why in the world are we talking about it? It's not in the Bible. Well, there's a lot of things that not in the Bible that we talk about, like the International Mission Board. <laughs> You're not going to find that in the Bible either, but we, we love that. We love the International Mission Board and organizations and so forth. The cooperative program is not in the Bible. I mean, anyhow, there's a lot of good things that are not in the Bible, but they have biblical precedent or biblical principles. What does Trinity mean? Write this down. It means literally triunity. Tri-unity. Or, it literally means three in oneness. The, the word's not found in the Bible, but the idea or the doctrine is clearly taught both in the Old and the New Testaments. To study this lofty doctrine is central to our faith because in so doing, listen to this guys, we are probing into the question, what is God like in himself? Do you get that? We're actually probing now, not his attributes and, you know, what he does and all, but who, who is he? 
What, who is he? What is he like within his very uh, entity, ontology, his very nature? Okay? So we're going to look at some technical words. Uh, I'm going to get to introduce you. I hear voices. Y'all hear voices? I hear voices. Somebody's speaking. Um, I want to introduce you to my favorite early church father, a man by the name of Athanasius. And Athanasius is a fourth century pastor, bishop, if you will. And he's going to help us a lot in dealing with different heresies that relate to uh, the Trinity. Now, after today, after you walk away from the study, here's my goal, that you will have a better understanding of the doctrine and you will be able to grasp some of the key terminologies when when are related to the doctrine of the Trinity. However, I don't think any of us are going to walk away from here going, man, that's simple. I get it. The Trinity, here it, here it is. And if you do that, I'm concerned about you, then you really didn't hear me, okay? <laughs> because there is mystery here. Uh, and you've got to be comfortable. And that's where I think Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and the Muslims, they, they get it wrong is because they're, they're not okay with mystery. They feel like they, they've got this figured out and this is the way it is and we are heretical. We're not heretical. We're biblical and yet there's mystery. So the Trinity in the Scripture. Let's look at the Old Testament first. Uh, Genesis 1.26, the first statement of the Trinity. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, when I was in seminary, my theology professor said that John Calvin got it right. This does not refer to the Trinity. This refers to a plurality of majesty. I mean, I thought as a young 20-something-year-old, I was going, sounds good to me. I... You know a lot more than I do, a plurality of majesty. But I thought, what does that mean? I don't, I don't know what it means, but he knows what it means. It means let us make man. It's talking about, of course, God who's talking, let us make man in our image. And it's just talking about God in the plural. He, he is just a plurality of majesty. Number two, no, it doesn't refer to the plurality of majesty. It refers to angels. God said, now you may want to jot these down because people want to ask you sometimes. What, what does that mean? What does Genesis 1.26 mean? You can say, well, i give you three options. And by the way, I'm going to give you three, and I'm also going to tell you which one I think is, is right. Dr. Garrett told us, he said, this is plurality of majesty. Number two is angels. Let us, let God and the angels make man. But nowhere in Scripture does it say angels had anything to do with the creation of man. Okay? Nowhere. So what is it? Number three, Wayne Gruden believes, I myself have disagreed now with my systematic theology professor, and I agree more with this one, and I've held this belief for many years now, that this is the first reference to our Trinitarian God. And to use Grudem's words, I quote, the best explanation is that already in the first chapter of Genesis, we have an indication of a plurality of persons in God himself. Okay? We have a plurality of persons because he uses the first person pronoun, we. Okay, let, let us, let we make man in our image. All right, let me look at some more Old Testament scriptures with you. Uh, Psalm 110, uh, this one should come up on the screen. Psalm 110, uh, the Lord said to my Lord. Now you think, I recognize that, but I don't recognize that in Psalm. That's, that's Jesus talking in Matthew 22, and that's correct. In Matthew 22, 41 through 46, Jesus quotes this verse, talking about who he is and his eternality, as he's arguing with the, the people. The Lord, now watch this, and we've studied the Hebrew names of God, remember that? What does the capital L-O-R-D refer to always? Yahweh, Jehovah, okay? The self, 
existent, eternal, covenantal God of Israel, the Lord, okay, said to my Lord. Now, that's still a word of deity. That is the Hebrew word Adonai, okay? This is interesting, is it not? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies uh, your footstool. And so Jesus, in applying this, this verse of Psalm 110, it would read like this. God the Father said to God the Son, sit at my right hand. And uh, David here is referring to two separate persons, and yet they're, they're God. And so if you think that's an erroneous interpretation, go back and read Matthew 22. That's how Jesus understood it, okay? So we have Trinity in scriptures in Psalm 110.1. How about Isaiah 63.10, where it says, God's people grieved his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is separate from God, but yet he's part of God. Now, and y'all stay with me. Don't, don't cast heretical stones at me yet. Just, just let me walk with you through this, all right? That's, uh, pro, that's uh, Isaiah 63.10. Now, Isaiah 48.16, this one will come up on the screen. Isaiah 48.16 says, Come near to me, hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was, I was there. And now... Go ahead and roll the next slide. And now, the Lord God, now that's interesting, Adonai, God, that's not Elohim, that's Yahweh, Jehovah, Jehovah, the Lord God and His Spirit have sent me. Okay? So we're seeing Trinitarian scriptures. A lot of people say, well, it's not in the Old Testament, it's just in the New Testament. So I don't know if I believe it or not. No, 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 no. It is in the Old Testament as it is in the, in the New Testament. So let's go to the New Testament. And then, I agree, there are many more examples in the New Testament of, of the Trinity, if you will. So let's look at uh, some, of the, some of the more recognizable ones. Matthew 28, 19. This is the Great Commission where Jesus said, Go and uh, make disciples of all the nations and baptize them. Now notice the, the, uh, how we're to baptize each other. We're to baptize or to baptize believers in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so you have this one God, and yet He is He is three. He is Father, Son, uh, and and Spirit. Okay, let's look at a couple more verses real quickly. Second uh, Corinthians thirteen fourteen. Second Corinthians thirteen fourteen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit. How about that? Be with you all. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the second person of the Godhead, and the love of God the Father, the first person of the Godhead, and the communion of the Holy Spirit, third person of the Godhead, may they be with you all. Amen. I skipped one, guys. Let's go back to Matthew 3, 16 and 17, because this is very, very important, especially when you talk to modalists. Modalism says God is one mode at one time. He's never three in one. In fact, when God is God the Father, he, he no longer exists as God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. He is just one mode. They have a real problem with this verse because they all show up at one time. There they are. There he is. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him and a... And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And here it is. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Let me give you one more. This would be 1 Peter 1, 
2. 1 Peter 1, 2. I preached on this not too long ago here at Great Hills, and I love this passage of Scripture as it speaks of our God and His three persons. One and three, three and one. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, okay, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace uh, be multiplied. Now, Grudem makes three interesting statements at this point, and, and bear with him because... If you stop him at one point, you'll say he's a heretic. But, but let him finish. Let him finish his trilogy of statements. Number one, God is three persons. Number two, each person is fully God. Number three, there's one God. You say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. I know it don't make sense. Literally, my mind, my mortal mind... I can't fully grasp how, number one, he is three persons. Number two, each person is fully God, yet there's one. Okay? But Grudem says you've got to be okay with each one of these statements because then we're getting closer to, to grasping this doctrine. Okay, let me give you a couple more uh, statements before we get to the, the eras part. God is three persons means that the Father is not the Son. Are you with me? The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. So we, we have to talk in terms of three, okay? John 1.1 1, 1 shows how Jesus is separate from the Father, but yet he's still God. And, and I think this is the verse, yeah. In the beginning was the word, the Lagos. And we know exactly who that is because in John 1.14 he says, and the word was made flesh, dwelt among us. So we know that he's talking about Jesus. Now, Lagos to the Greeks is the epitome of knowledge and wisdom, okay? In the beginning was the word, the Lagos, and the Lagos was with God... And the Word was God, okay? So he is separate from the Father, but he is God. Another great verse is John 14, 26. Here, all three persons of the Godhead are mentioned, and yet you can easily see that each one of them is a separate person. Let me read this to you, John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, who's speaking? Jesus. He will teach you all things. The Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. John 14, 26. I was asked, uh, one of my children said, Dad, you've got to quit talking about getting killed. He said, that's bothering me. You talk a lot about dying, preaching the gospel. I said, well, it's a, it's a reality. It could, be, it could very well happen to me because I'm going to preach the Bible. And that's going to be very unpopular in other countries, and it's exceedingly getting unpopular in our country. He goes, but, well, let's talk about this. <laughs> no, really, what would you do if somebody were going to persecute you, they were going to kill you, or they're going to kill one of us? Would you, would you still honor God? What would you say? Have you ever thought about Am I the only strange one that thinks like this? What, what would you say? What would you do? I said, I got a great verse for you. The Bible says, Jesus says, don't worry about, don't worry about what you say. The Holy Spirit of God will give you the words to say. And that verse, by the way, is within the context of persecution and suffering. All right. Let's look at some more verses as we walk through this. That's John 14, 26. Wonderful. Okay, each person is fully God. It's taught in Scripture. The Father is God who reigns over all, and He is the one to whom Jesus prays. Is that right? He is the one to whom... Father, if it be thy will, who's he talking to? He's talking to God the Father. If it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. 
The Son is fully God, as seen in John 1, 1, we looked at that, and John 20, 28. Because Thomas said to the resurrected Christ, my Lord and my, and my God. Okay? Hebrews 1, 3 is a wonderful text that talks about the deity of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Let me, let me read this verse to you. And there's a Greek word in here that's going to just explode in your mind. It's an incredible word. Who, Jesus, that's who the antecedent refers to. Being the brightness of his glory, hmm, how about that, and the express image. Now that word, express image, is one Greek word. It is the word character. You say, that sounds like the word character. That's exactly right. He is the very character, essence of God, of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is Hebrews 1.3. So we see God the Father, he is God. God the Son, he is God. God the Holy Spirit, he is God. And this is in Acts 5, 3 and 4. And I've shared this with you when I preached a message on pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But let me, let me share this with you again because I believe this is the best verse in all the Bible that talks about the deity of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit, He is really God. Some of you are a little ahead of me. You're going, I don't say anything about God up there. I don't worry you, Pastor. But Peter said, Ananias, who, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You remember the context. They come together and Ananias and Sapphira, they, they, they're holding back. They're not being honest. They're, they're lying and saying, well, yeah, we sold all the property. But no, they kept some for themselves. And Peter said, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why, why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but you have lied to who? Now, earlier he just said you have lied to who? The Holy Spirit is God. Okay? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Okay. You see, I get the threeness. Tell me again why I'm not a polytheist and a tritheist. Because God is one. So you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. I know. The Shema says in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, the Lord is one. James 2, 19 says, you do well to believe that God is one. Even the demons believe and tremble. To overstress the oneness of God and neglect that God is one and yet three persons is the heresy called modalism. Okay, and we're going to talk about that more in just a moment. Okay. He is modalism, which says he is father at, at times, he is son at times, and he is Holy Spirit at times. But the early church dismissed that as heresy because they just opened up their Bibles and said that can't be true according to the Great Commission, according to the baptism of Jesus. Okay, let me, let me say a word about human analogies. <clears throat> a lot of times we try to explain the Trinity by using fi uh, uh, water, steam, and ice. Three separate entities, yet it's one entity made of the same uh, substance. And we also like to use the human analogy of uh, I am a father, I am a son, and I am a husband. Okay, I'm a father uh, to my children, I'm a son to my parents, I'm a husband to my wife, Ashley. And Grudem says be very, very careful. Be, he says, nowhere in the Bible is the Trinity described with human analogies. And so be careful because a lot of times when we do human analogies, we are modalist. Because 
I am father, at that one time I am only a father and I'm only a son. You see what I'm saying? And that water I esteem kind of breaks down as well. And I'm laughing because Grudem says, be very, very careful. And at the end of the chapter, he uses some really good human analogies to help me understand, not, not necessarily the, 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 the Trinity as, as its essence, but it helps me understand some of the implication of Trinitarian doctrine. So... Let me just give you that caveat and give you that disclaimer. Because people that say, well, the Trinity's easy. It's just like, now be careful. It's not easy. There's nothing easy about this. And every human analogy will break down at some point. Does that help you to know that the Bible never uses analogies to describe the Trinity, the Trinitarian God? Okay? These are just words of introduction. All right. God has always existed as Trinity. In creating the world, God the Father spoke it into being. God the Son was the person through whom the Father created the world. Remember that? Colossians 1.16. We'll look at this more in a moment. And God the Holy Spirit was active and present as He moved upon the face of the waters, Genesis 1.2. You're going to see the Trinity especially pristine and on display in things such as creation and the redemption of man. Okay? Okay, so let's look at some errors regarding the doctrine of the Trinity. The first one we've looked at, but let's look at it a little bit more. The modalism. This is this was taught by Sibelius. He was a fourth century, third century, excuse me, teacher, and he and it's known today as Sibelianism. And and Sibelius stressed this oneness of God to the neglect of the the three of God. And he said that God is one, and he operated in the in the past as just one entity at one time. He never could be all three at one time. That's what Sibelius taught, and this is known as he was just he was a mode, okay, M O D E. He was just a particular essence mode as Father, while relinquishing his deity as Son and Spirit. Well, the early church said that that doesn't that doesn't work, uh, because as I said a moment ago, the baptism of Jesus uh, really really negates that. Number two is tritheism. And tritheism is uh, polytheism, saying, well, we, we worship three gods. And really, the Muslims, they get on our case about this. They're like, oh, this Trinity stuff, that doesn't make any sense. Blasphemy. How can you, how can you worship Jesus? You don't worship Jesus. You worship God. You worship the Holy Spirit. No, you worship the Holy Spirit. You worship God. He is just Father. He has no Son. He has no Spirit. He is just, that, that's okay if you're reading the Quran. Okay, that's what you should believe. But if you're reading the Bible, you cannot believe that. Because I've just demonstrated clearly, if you, if you were listening and you understand the Bible, that God is three, yet he's one. Okay, so let's look number two, at three, at Arianism. Now, Arianism is from the fourth century teacher by the name of Arius, A-R-I-U-S. Uh, he taught that... Well, he had a lot of things he taught. The one that, that pertains to us here is that there was a time when God the Son did not exist, nor did the Holy Spirit. God the Father created the Son and created the Holy Spirit. Now, I have a hard time even saying that because it's so unbiblical. And Arius, he, he taught this. Um, Jesus was not of the same nature as the Father. He referenced verses like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only, help me, 
only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Colossians 1, 16, he, 15, He is the firstborn prototokos over all creation. So he said, well, you see, there's a time. Well, no, because prototokos in Colossians 1 does not deal with time. It deals with kind. And God has always existed as a trinity. It, it, there wasn't a time where Jesus was that he did not exist, or the second person of the Trinity did not exist. Now, true, he was born, okay? He was born, he, he, he's always been the eternally Son of God, but I understand in the Incarnation, he came, and that's where it gets so mysterious and yet remarkable and amazing. Remember, Jesus said, before Abraham was, somebody help me, I am. Oh, by the way, I'm preaching on that Sunday. That's like in a few days. The question, is Jesus really God? Yeah. That's why I don't want to say, yes, he is. And that's the text. Of all the texts I could have chosen, God led me to, to that one. Okay, let me get back to Arius, though I don't want to. Okay, he also said Jesus and the Holy Spirit were not co-equal or co-eternal with the Father. The Jehovah Witnesses are Arians. Don't let them tell you otherwise. When they try to witness to me, they say, hey, we all believe in Jesus. We all accept him as our Savior. We're going to heaven. I say, which Jesus? And they get real nervous. Well, well the, the, the begotten Jesus, the Jesus that at one time never existed as the second person of the Trinity. I said, we're talking about two different Jesuses now. I said, because I, I don't follow that Jesus. And the Mormon's Jesus, the brother of Satan, I don't follow that Jesus either. So Arianism is alive and well uh, today. I see it especially in uh, the Arianism. Jehovah Witnesses. Arius also believed Jesus was of a similar nature. Now, I'm about to give you some, some interesting words. Some of y'all have heard homoousios and homoousios. If you haven't, I'm about to give it to you so that uh, you, can, you can say, yes, we talked about that. All right, Arius believed Jesus was of a similar nature as God the Father, but not the same nature. Now, the early church at Nicaea in A.D. 325 and Constantinople, the Council of Constantinople in A.D. 381, you unanimously, or almost unanimously, disagreed with Arius, and they sided with Athanasius. And Athanasius said, no, no, no. This is, you got it all wrong, Arian. Here, here's, here's what the truth is. So Arius believed that Jesus was of the similar nature. That's homo oi, oi usios. Now, the oi comes from the Greek um, letter, the iota. My son, Brian, he's texting me. He's going, Dad, I'm in Greek. Oh, my, what in the world? And it's so fun. It's, he's, it's, he's studying, the, the, and it's hard. I mean, you've got to really dig down with it. He's, he's doing great with it. But there is a lot of doctrine that's going to hinge. I'm showing you the I, the one little iota. Arius said it's homoousios, which means he has a similar nature. Jesus has a similar nature to God the Father, but he's inferior to the Father because he was created. Athanasius said, no, 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 it's homoousios. Homoousios, no I. It says he is of the identical same one nature. If you want me to spell that, come see me and I will. I'll show it to you. All right, so let's talk about the next one, subordinationism. Subordinationism. This doctrine is where the proponents believe Jesus is eternal and not created but he's still inferior. Okay, now we're going to get into uh, uh, people believe this today. All right, he's 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 not created, but he's still less than and inferior. Therefore, the subordinationism he is subordinate to. Okay, 
And we get subordinates, don't we? I mean, you're the, the leader of your uh, workplace. Let's say you're the team leader and you have subordinates. You have people under, underneath you who are inferior to you. And subordinationism is, is that way in the Trinity. Well, here, comes, here he comes, Athanasius. He's like, mercy. He said, no, he's not. He's not subordinate and, and he's certainly not um, created. And so Alex, Athanasius is the bishop of Alexandria. And check this out. He's 29 years of age when he attended the Council of Nicaea in AD 325. Now remember that Nicaea, they're all coming together and they're debating this nature of God, who, who Jesus is. And he emerges as the champion. I mean, he really is the champion of orthodoxy, but it cost him, cost him dearly. He was uh, five times he was exiled, spent 17 years in hiding. And you say, well, what? Because then the politics and religion were tightly woven together. That's why I'm so grateful for our forefathers of a separation of church and state. They were interwoven, and whatever political leader would come in, if he was Arian in his Christology, then he'd persecute the Athanasius people. <laughs> and then otherwise. I know it's kind of twisted, kind of strange, but this is, this is where they were in A.D. 325. And so Athanasius, he, he held to his doctrine, held to his faith, and yet he was persecuted greatly uh, for it. Okay? He's one of my champions. And by the way, it was Athanasius in A.D. 368 in his Easter sermon was the very first church father to list all 27 books of canonical scripture that we have in our New Testament today. He's a champion. Um, I wish they, I, I tried to find a biography on Athanasius. I think I read some short, small biography. I wish there was a, a detailed biography on, on his life, but I understand he lived in the 4th century. It was kind of hard. <clears throat> Let me get through adoptionism, then we'll maybe take some time, ask a couple questions, answer a couple questions. Adoptionism, that would be, um, wow, that's E. I guess this is the last of the heresy. Amen. E. This teaching espoused that Jesus lived an ordinary life until his baptism. And at that time, God the Father adopted him as his son. Okay? So Jesus, he's just a normal person, 30 years of age, something happened. He becomes the Son of God, and God the Father adopts him. He was not eternal nor equal to the Father in nature, but he was inferior. We have many adoptionists today, and I'm going to, tell you, I'm going to give you two examples. Benjamin Franklin, though he's not today, he's dead. Benjamin Franklin believed this, and so do the Muslims, so does Islam. Uh, yes, he's good, he's special, I give you that, granted, there's something unique about him, this prophet, the Muslims would say. But he is not God. He is not of the same nature of God. He's not even the son of God. And, and Benjamin Franklin would say the same. And the guy that I'm dialoguing with in our Explore God is an adoptionist too. He grants, he gives us that Jesus is a cool guy. Okay? He taught some pretty cool things. And he may have even done some miracles. Not sure about that, but that, that's it. That's where, that's where it stops. So it's inter isn't it interesting that these old heresies... They just kind of crop up. They just kind of creep up. Now, their tentacles are still... And that's why it's so important to know doctrine. That's why it's so important to know theology. That's why they... If you're going to be a pastor, I, I, I believe a call to preach is a call to prepare. And they take you through this rigorous four years. took me four years of going through this. Why in the world just get out there and preach, brother, preach? Well, you preach and you got heresy. And people say, well, who are you? You're, you're not the arbiter of truth and all... Well, this is, okay, at least say this. This is what the Bible says, all right? And then you help combat heresy through, through Scripture. 
Okay, let, let me finish with the philoque clause because these, these are the important things that, that you, need, you need to at least have heard of it if you're going to sit through a class of systematic theology, okay? Some of you are going, I'm glad there ain't no test on this. And I, don't, I don't understand that stuff. The philoque clause, it's F-I-L-I-O-Q-U-E. F-I-L-I-O-Q-U-E. Philoque, that means and from the sun. Philoque in Latin is and from the sun. Say, so, okay, what does this have to do with the Trinity? All right. Initially, in the Nicene Creed, it said the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father. That's all. Later, I think around the 6th century, they added to the Nicene Creed and said he, the Holy Spirit proceeded not only from the Father, but he also proceeded, what? Philoque, from the Son. Oh, that caused a huge fight. In fact, the church split. Y'all ever heard the great schism in 1054, AD 1054? It's it split between the Western Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. They're like, do not add that and from the sun stuff. And the Western Church is like, no, we're good with this because it's biblical and from the sun. And so they split. Not, not just doctrinally, but also because of some more political Eastern church that we don't know about all this Pope stuff. We're not following the Pope stuff. And so they, they split. By the way, in church history, this is known as the Great Schism or the Great Divide. Okay? John 15, 26, Jesus says he will send the Holy Spirit from the Father. So I get that. I, I, don't, I don't know. Y'all may disagree with me. I don't have a problem with that. The Holy Spirit, come, he, he proceeds from the Father and the Son, as long as you're talking about function and role, but not person, okay? <laughs> as if the Holy Spirit came out of, at one time he didn't exist, and he was emanated, he, he was come out of God the Father. No, 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 I'm not saying that at all. And neither was Nicaea and Constantinople. But he, now we're getting into roles now. We're getting into functions. We're getting into responsibilities and their roles, responsibilities, or functions, there is, there is a subordinationism, okay? Not in their essence, not in their deity, absolutely not, but in their roles, the Father sent the Son. Jesus did not send the Father. Yeah, am I making sense? Okay? And the Holy Spirit didn't send Jesus. So there is this equality in ontology, but there's difference in functionality. And that is, if we can grasp that, I know that's a lot, or that's hard in the morning to grasp that, but that is a very, very important um, doctrine. Okay, let me make sure I got this right here. Yeah, let me, let me give one more statement about the Philoque Clause, and I want to quote uh, Grudem here. He's saying that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. This does not refer to the creation of the Holy Spirit, but only the way the Holy Spirit eternally relates to the Father and the Son, which I thought that was a good description that Grudem gave us. This is probably, I don't want to stop, this is probably a good place to stop, number three, because um, we could actually have a little more time, we would get into some of the more practical dimensions of, of Trinitarian doctrine, but let's stop there. we got a couple minutes if you want to make a comment, ask a, ask a question, and uh, we'll, we'll entertain that at this time. Good, Mike. Good thinking. 
Anybody else? Comments? Insights, wisdom, pearls of wisdom. May you speak or question that you may have. Yes, sir. Or yes, I do. Absolutely, I do. I have something outstanding. Kathy knows what I'm going to say. Um, in fact, I just, I just keep, when I say I, you, your tithes and offerings, thank you, keep buying this document, and because I keep giving it out, it is a comparative chart on all the major world religions and all the cults, and it'll give you historic Christianity, what it teaches about God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, salvation, end times, whatever, and it gives you orthodox Christianity, or <clears throat> the biblical teachings, and then up here it says, okay, what do the Sikhs say about Jesus? Boom, there it is. It's, it's really good. Uh, it only costs the church, I think, a dollar, but uh, it's, it's worth If everybody wants one, just let me know. We'll, we'll order a, a bunch of them, okay? Uh, I think we're going to have to order a bunch of them there. Okay, good. Amen, Mike, the tithes and offerings, buddy, there in, in, in vogue here. So, yeah, our, it, it's outstanding. It, it really is, and it's done very well. It's presented produced by our North American uh, Mission Board. <coughs> okay, any other comments, questions before we, before we get rolling? Yes, sir. makeup of a person, the body, the soul, and what, what was it? The mind, body, soul, mind. It's, it's three uh, entities, yet it's contained in one piece, and that's kind of helped him, you know, uh, process, process that. I'm with you. I don't think it fully explains. I think there, it breaks down, but it, 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 it's, you start thinking in ways of, you know, to kind of, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but he, he does use uh, a couple of very good illustrations, and I'm going to and I think he's careful, as you are, to say, now, this don't explain everything because, you know, comparing just one facet of a body or a mind to the Holy Spirit, for example, the, or Jesus is like, okay, now there's no comparison there. I get that. But it's just helping us wrap our minds around it. But please keep this in mind when you deal with the Trinity. You cannot wrap your mind around it because you are mortal human, okay? Could God not be just way huger and more amazing than us? I mean, he, he is, okay? So... You know, be, try to be at peace with, with that. But remind me, well, I'm not going to have to be reminded because in my notes. I'm going to go right through those notes, and I'm going to share with you two really good insights he uses to help us with, with Trinity. Yes, sir. Dan? That's a good word. Dan said, nowhere in Scripture does Jesus say, and God is like whatever. He always said in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is like a father who had two sons. One was prodigal, one stayed home, and so forth. So, um, you know, the thing I, I just so love about the Gospel of John, and, I, and when I read through the Gospel of John real slowly, I get this, this amazing relationship 
that the, the father has with the son. They've always had that relationship. They, they've always existed as father-son. I do not know how that has happened. Believe me, I, I have no idea how that has always happened. And the Holy Spirit, I do not know. But I do know in the incarnation, the word, the eternal second person of the Trinity became flesh and dwelt among us. And when you watch Jesus, oh, in John 8, I cannot wait to share some of this with y'all uh, Sunday. Every, every time somebody tries to give him glory or honor, he goes, it's not about me. He says, I come to do the will of the Father. Give him honor. Give him glory. And, and I'm, just, I'm just blown away by that. Because we... We like glory, and we, we like honor, but, but at this time in the life of the Son, he was like, I have come to do the Father's will. And that's where Satan comes along and says, well, why don't you do this? You know, why don't you uh, turn this bread into stone, and why don't you just hop down off the mountain, and the angels come and get you? And if he does that, he doesn't do the Father's will, because the Father's will was that he died. He had to die for the sins of the world. And so Jesus has this resolute, concrete I mean, myopic, I am going to the cross. And nothing will stop me. Because I have come, I'm, I'm totally submitting my will to the Father's will. And I know it's, it's mysterious, but John just gets me whenever, and this will come out in our John 8. And then as soon as he says, I come to do the Father's will, he says, I am. I'm like, <laughs> you know, that's what Jehovah said in Exodus 3. He said, I am. And Jesus wasn't, Kidding, and it wasn't missed on them because when he said, I am, y'all remember? They were ready to kill him because he said, He's Jehovah. He's God. He has the same essence as God. Ooh, amazing. Okay, we got 743. Somebody else in the back? I thought I had a question. Yes, sir. No, you've already asked one. Anybody? Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. Go ahead, Art. Go ahead. Oh, no, I studied Charles Finney. Um, he died in 1872, so. But did you study his work? Oh, yes. I did a Ph.D. on him, a dissertation on him. So, yes, I did. And it, um, he and I, we got to know him really well. And um, I had to go up to Oberlin College, spend a week up in their special collection, archives, and just studied this guy because he... He's a fascinating person, but doctrinally he had some really bad doctrine. You know, some bad doctrine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he did. Um, I mentioned one of them, the perfectionism, and the other one is just a minimizing of the sovereignty of God and obligate. God's obligated. Not even God, you don't obligate God. God is God is God. You know, but I will say Charles Finney, 1792-1875, I think it was. I used to know all these dates really good, but I've, I don't as much anymore. Um, fascinating, fascinating man. And uh, I, I've learned, I, in fact, I gave nine salient features of Charles Finney as a model for pastoral evangelists. So there's a lot there that I really appreciate. Emphasis on prayer, emphasis on the Holy Spirit, a, a soul winner and those kind of things. But I also had to critique his theology, and that's where, that's where it broke, broke down. 745! Uh, God bless y'all. You are dismissed. Want to honor your time. Goodbye, people on the internet. Bless you. Thanks for watching us.